This is a Hot Pie Original. Conflict. The mere word makes us all shiver. Ugh, conflict. I don't want any. But life is full of conflict. And like everything else, it's our attitude toward it that determines how we can handle it. If we avoid it at all costs, it controls us. If we are always in conflict with someone or have to be mad at someone all the time, it controls us. The truth is, we have to be balanced in our approach to conflict. We have to be able to handle it when it presents itself. And at the same time, we have to be able to keep choosing peace most of the time. And that is a very interesting tension in most of us because we all have conflict styles. And these styles lend themselves to either being conflict phobic or being able to handle conflict. Let me talk to you about some styles. There are three of them. The first style is fight. This is the Rambo style of conflict management. Go in there. If there's any problem, just duke it out, fight, yell, scream, throw things. That's not a very productive style. But some families, that's how they handle it. They're loud. They express themselves. They they get all worked up about things. And that's just the way those families are. And everyone understands it. Number two style is flight. And that means if there's any conflict, we get out of dodge. We run away. We get away as quickly as possible. We flee from the situation. And then you can have a combo style. You can be a fighter and then a fleer. Um, that was my style growing up. I had uh, conflict with my dad a number of times as I was growing up, and I would take a stand and I would fight for a while. Then when it was obvious that I was going to lose, which was all the time, I would run to my room and cry and, and flee. So that was my style. Now, obviously, these three conflict styles, fight, flight, or a combination of them, all of these are dysfunctional. We need to come to another style, and that is a style in which we stand our ground, feel good about ourselves, speak our peace, say what we need to say, but at the same time, try to balance and be thoughtful and loving to the people who we are living with and caring for. Now, conflict strategies, there are three of them, either win-win, win-lose, or lose-lose. And conflict strategies are our thoughts about how it's going to turn out. Obviously, win-win is what we want. That means that in a conflict, when I get in it, I want to win. I want to feel good about myself. And I want you to win, which means I want you to feel good about yourself. Win-win. And at the end of the conflict, and this can happen many times, we can be closer because we've gone through it together. Another conflict strategy is win-lose. Now, if you believe this, you believe that you have to win the conflict. And for someone to win, someone else has to lose. Now, the problem with that is that ultimately the conflict is never resolved. Because if you win and they lose, they're still angry about it. So there's been no real resolution. And the last one, which is, of course, lose-lose, means I believe that if there's ever a conflict, I will lose, meaning I will feel bad at the end of it, and they will lose as well. So that it's lose-lose. And it's almost so bad that why even get into it? Because it'll just make it worse. 
These strategies either help us to go through conflicts with a balanced approach, or they scare us so bad or intimidate us so much that we never want to deal with them. The two styles we want is we want a win-win strategy and we want a conflict resolution style. Now, in any conflict, there are two choices. You can escalate the conflict or you can de-escalate the conflict. I'm going to go over right now some ways that you can escalate conflict. If your life is too boring and you need a little stimulation, you want to get a little conflict going, I'm going to tell you how to do it. On the same hand, I'm going to be telling you how to de-escalate conflicts as well. So if you want to be able to reduce the conflict level in your life, use some of these techniques. Okay. On the escalating side, you can escalate a conflict by being righteous and you can de-escalate a conflict by taking responsibility. Let me talk to you about what this means. Let's say someone comes to me and they say, Pat, you're always late. Now I can get righteous about that and say something like, well, I may be late, but at least I look nice. Look at you. Now that will escalate the conflict. Or I could say, you know, you're right. I always am just a little bit late and I'm taking responsibility then for the grain of truth in what they said. And when you take personal responsibility, it de-escalates the anger of the other person because now they feel heard. And as we're going to look at later, feeling heard, attentive listening and conflict can reduce conflict by about 87%. Another escalating technique is being defensive or defending yourself, telling everyone why you're right, why you've always been right, and why you had to do it that way. And as you get defensive, the escalating techniques go up. A de-escalating technique on the other side is to reflect back to the person the words, I understand. So let's say they're mad about something and you can say, I understand that you're feeling angry or I understand you're upset about that. Now, that doesn't mean that you agree with them or that they're right or any of those other things, but it reflects back to them that you understand what they're saying. And once again, attentive listening is a de-escalating strategy. It can make them feel heard and reduce the tension. On the escalating side, you can personalize. If you use the word you, you are personalizing a statement and people feel that as an attack. The only thing that works when you're saying you is if you say you are wonderful. As soon as you say anything negative with the word you, you've immediately put somebody into a little child mode. We've all been accused of things. We've all had someone wag their finger at us. And as soon as you say you, that's where the other person goes. So we start to get angrier and it escalates it. The way of de-escalating is to reframe the statement. And instead of saying you, take responsibility and say I. I have a concern. I need to share this with you. I'm wondering. So you take responsibility. You talk about yourself, not the other person. That is a de-escalating strategy. Another escalating behavior is that you insist on immediate change. So you come in, you see something isn't done right with your husband or the dishes haven't been done. And you say, you need to do this right now. You insist on immediate change. That escalates 
the experience because a person now feels pressured and demanded. And a de-escalating strategy, if somebody is insisting on immediate change, is that you say to them, I'll get back to you on that. I got to think about it for a minute. I'll get back to you. I'll do it later. Some kind of way of buying yourself a little time that de-escalates the intensity. An escalating behavior is called overkill. Overkill means you say the same thing over and over and over again. And you're so, we've got so much steam going that you just have to let it out and keep talking about it. And as you do that, you get more and more wound up. Now, a de-escalating strategy for that, and this is a very difficult one for most of us, is to quietly listen without interrupting, without correcting, without telling someone else that they're wrong. Here's the research. 87% of all confrontations can be de-escalated by attentive listening without interrupting. And if it's a marriage, that goes up even higher, that you need to be able to listen. Because in a marriage, many of us have the same old fights over and over and over again. And to break out of that negative pattern, we've got to do something different. Well, let's talk about listening. How do you listen attentively? Well, first of all, let's talk about the barriers to effective listening. Number one is hearing only what you want to hear. And many of us distort how we listen. We only hear the things that we believe are going to be said or that what we want to hear. And then that becomes a distortion in what's really being said. Number two, paying attention to who is speaking rather than what's being said. That's a barrier. We're thinking about how mad we are at the person who's speaking rather than what they're saying. Number three, we ignore the emotional content of what is being said. And number four, we don't give our full attention to the speaker because we already believe we know what they're going to say. Now let's turn these around. What are the keys to effective listening? Number one, and this is the hardest one, being silent and letting the speaker verbalize his or her feelings and understandings. That is the most important thing. Number two, restating and feeding back information to the speaker. I heard you say, I understand this to mean. And that's a way of showing the speaker that you are listening, that you have got the content of what they are saying. You just say it back to them in a nice way. And number three, reflecting and expressing the feelings of the speaker back to them. I understand you're really upset. I understand you're hurt so that I am saying what I understand their feelings to be. That reduces the escalation and makes people feel heard. And that is an effective listening strategy. Okay, now we've talked about strategies. We've talked about escalating, de-escalating behaviors. Let's put this into a process to resolve conflict. Here's the setup. We need to make sure, number one, that the circumstances of a conflict process are set up appropriately. Number one, you need adequate time. Two, you need privacy. Don't do it in front of other people. Number three, you need to have your physical needs met. You need to be rested. You need to have your hunger satisfied. You need not to be drinking. You need not to be at 1130 at night and be exhausted. Because what tends to happen is that we 
hold back our conflicts and we have them at inappropriate times when we're hungry, when we're exhausted, when we've had something to drink, all kinds of different things that can exacerbate the conflict. So we need to set aside time to have a process of communication. So the circumstances need to be right. Number two, you need to have an invitation and a positive attitude. And you need to start the communication with telling the person, your partner, whoever you're communicating with, what your intent is. My intent is to resolve this conflict. I want us to be closer. I want us to feel better about each other. I want to get through this. So you start with where you want to end up and you make that statement. Number two, the partners have to be willing to de-escalate by objective listening non-interrupting, not interpretation, no personalizing, no defending. The other person in the communication needs to be willing to risk expressing their real feelings. I'm bothered. I'm hurt. I need to tell you what I feel about that. Those are expressions are starting to be expressions of feeling, not with blame. Now, the de-escalation is number three. We've talked about how to do that, some techniques. We just went over that. Whoever declares the fight first gets to express their unhappiness first. The other carefully listens and carefully paraphrases what the unhappy one is saying. That's the key. Now, the fourth phase is resolution. In resolution, you request a response. When all the anger is gone, then you ask the unhappy partner what they want. After they've said everything they need to say and you've listened attentively, then you decide what you will give to them in response. After that, hopefully there's going to be reunion and restoration of good feelings and then a celebration. You need to celebrate any time you resolve a conflict or have a good talk with your children, with your husband, with the people in your business that you are, whose lives you're involved with, because moving through conflict is one of the hardest things that any of us can do. I'd like you to listen in with me when Ron McMillan and his partner, Joseph Gurney, talk about their book, Crucial Conversations. Now here's Ron and Joseph. For the past 20 years, we've been looking for levers, not just that can move the world, but the ones that do. We've looked for levers that would help individuals, help teams, and even help entire organizations move from good to great move from good around areas like productivity or quality or growth to becoming best in class in that area. We've also looked at individuals, those who excel in their careers, who progress in organizations, who have tremendous influence. We've looked at those who had wonderful relationships with their spouses or loved ones and tried to contrast them with those who seem to feel stuck. And in that search, we've discovered a principle of leadership, but even bigger than that, a principle of life. This is a principle which, if you can grasp the breadth and the relevance and the significance of it, literally gives you a lever that can move your world. And here's the principle. Anytime you find yourself stuck, there are crucial conversations keeping you there. One more time. Anytime you find yourself stuck in your relationships, in a team that's not performing the way you want, in a business that you're trying to move forward, anytime you find yourself stuck, there tend to be a handful of crucial conversations that you're either not holding or not holding well. Let me illustrate quickly. I'm aware of a woman who was working hard to develop her network marketing organization. 
As she moved forward, she had very little support from her husband and therefore from the rest of her family. He was annoyed that she was spending time building her business and not as available to the family as she had been before. Well, here's how it played out. Rather than confront the issue directly and create a healthy conversation around it, he would make insulting comments about MLMs. She would withdraw and avoid him. She started to see him as negative and, in fact, was encouraged by her peer group to see him that way. So she needed to spend less time around him. The more she withdrew and avoided him, the more insulting and negative he became. He started actually to divide the family, and the two of them eventually divorced after this terrible experience that took place over a period of time. Now, let's look at that again. They were stuck, stuck for a number of months. Neither of them were getting what they wanted. Neither was getting the relationship they wanted. She wasn't getting the support she wanted to be able to build the business that she aspired to create. And why? It was for lack of ability to hold one crucial conversation and hold it well. Anytime you find yourself stuck, there tend to be at the root of what is keeping you stuck. Crucial conversations were either not holding or not holding well. If that is true, then the key to getting unstuck is to ask ourselves, What is the crucial conversation that I'm not holding or not holding well? That charts the path forward. Thanks, Joseph. Perhaps it'd be helpful at this point to define what's a crucial conversation and uh, why do we think we know so much about this topic? Over the last 12 years, we've literally been researching um, in some of the best companies of America, the very best communicators and saying, how do they deal with Difficult conversations. How do they deal with conflict, with uh, problems? Uh, In this research, which we call best practices research, we interviewed over 20,000 people, uh, surveyed over half a million in order to identify what we call the master communicators. Often in a business survey that we passed out to a thousand people, we'd say, who is the very best communicator you know in the workplace? They'd write down someone's name. As we collected the surveys back, uh, ticked off the names, uh, counted the responses, sometimes an individual might have been mentioned 40, 50, 60 times as the very best communicator in the organization. We'd then, with the organization's permission, ask if we could study this individual and we'd shadow them and would say, what do they do and why would people consider them a master communicator? We studied literally hundreds of these master communicators in a variety of very prominent businesses throughout America. And we learned some critical things about how all of us can improve our communication. One thing we learned is that most of us, and I'm guessing this applies to everyone listening, is a good communicator and does very well in casual conversation, in routine, regular communication. What differentiates the master communicators from us is how they handle these crucial conversations. Because what we found is when it matters most, you and I do the very worst. When it matters most, we do the worst. We found what identifies a crucial conversation is when three factors come together. First, high stakes. This conversation is not about the ball game. This one matters. Number two, opposing opinions. We don't agree. Number three, and that's often the result of conditions one and two, is strong emotion. When it's high stakes, opposing opinions, and strong emotions, this is a conversation that matters. Ironically, when it matters most is when we do the worst. Why? Primarily because of the strong emotion. And we have literally documented research 
that says in a crucial conversation when the emotions are highest, the physiology of the brain changes. Literally, our higher reasoning and logic centers close down. And what's called our primate brain takes over, which has basically two modes, fight or flight. By the way, that serves us very well if we're stuck in the jungle facing a tiger. But if we're facing complex social interactions, that is the worst mode to be in. I don't know if any of you have had the experience where right in the middle of a crucial conversation, you stumble for words and trying to think of what to say and virtually nothing comes to mind. Why? Nothing good. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? Basically, our higher reasoning centers have shut down and our strong muscle groups are preparing for action and emotion rules. Maybe some of you have had this experience. Right in the middle of a tough conversation, I start stamping my feet, waving my finger in front of their face, and shouting at the top of my lungs. You know, at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. (laughs) But an hour later, looking back, I go, oh, my heck, what did I do? What did I do? I can't believe it. I was throwing a tantrum like a two-year-old. What was I thinking? Well, the answer was, you weren't thinking, okay? The brain had turned off. And that's why in these crucial conversations where it matters the very most, we do the very worst. The brain is shut down, strong emotion has taken over, and we end up acting like a two-year-old, hurting the results that we're after and the relationships we care about. So remember the the principle that we were trying to illustrate here, that anytime you're stuck, there are crucial conversations keeping you there. Now, all of us can recognize what Ron was describing here that sometimes we don't do as well as we should. But the argument we're making is not just one of etiquette. It's one of results, that results that matter the most to us in our lives hang on our capacity to be able to do well in these crucial conversations. We found, for example, that the difference between marriages that succeed and those that stay stuck is the capacity to hold the crucial conversations that we're either not holding or not holding well. Can we talk about sort of our our needs and wants from each other? Can we talk about bad habits that seem to recur over time? Can we talk about problems with in-laws? I'm aware of one family that was divided for years and years, literally, because every time the children would go over to grandma and grandpa's house, They would violate every rule and commitment that the parents were hoping that they would sustain. And this created resentment on the part of the other spouse, which then created defensiveness on the part of the one that came from this family and so on. Literally, they were withholding the children and fighting over them for years because of an inability to work through that crucial conversation. Two marriage scholars by the name of Markman and Notarius were able to predict with 90% accuracy which couples would stay together and which would get divorced in a five-year period of time by watching the couple for 45 minutes. Guess what they had to watch? Any idea? 45 minutes of the couple engaged in any crucial conversation. That was all it took. They watched them for a short period of time, coded how they dealt with that conversation, followed them for five years, and could predict success or failure not based on any kind of common interest, common background, common values, common religion, but just their ability to talk about their differences. That was what made or broke the relationship. Now, as we describe this principle, we suggested that it divided not just individuals, but teams and even entire organizations from each other. Our point here is that if you want to understand the difference between the best at business development, at entrepreneurship, at establishing a new organization, the best at creating support from a family, the best at coaching people who don't perform the way they can, 
and the good or the worst around those same dimensions. The one skill that consistently sets them apart from the rest is the capacity to master crucial conversations. Now, the problem, of course, with mastering crucial conversations is we've already established when it matters the most, we do the worst, that the emotion takes over and the fight or flight response kicks in. What this tends to do is drive our responses into some form of silence or some form of violence. I don't know if any of you have ever received the silent treatment, which can go on for hours or days, <laughs> or if you're really masters at this, weeks, right? Oh. I, I talked to one guy who had a screaming match with his 17-year-old son. The 17-year-old son ran out of the house, slammed the door, and they were silent a lifetime. They never spoke again. A lot of us do differing degrees of silence in, in our response to crucial conversations. Others will go to violence, differing degrees of controlling behaviors, insulting behaviors, uh, threats. And whether it's uh, me cutting you off in a sentence, not letting you express your point of view and not caring to even hear it, or it's all the way to me verbally assaulting you, violent responses destroy the results we're after and the relationships we care about. So whether it's silence or violence, that is not handling a crucial conversation in a way that'll produce the results that matter. So what do you do? Well, fortunately, we've been able to watch hundreds of people do phenomenally well in these crucial conversations. And we've learned that you don't have to be good at the entire crucial conversation. You just need to be really good at the beginning. It's setting up the right conditions at the beginning. And once it gets underway and people are non-defensive, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And then there's a little piece at the end that also becomes very critical. So we've been able to extract from watching these amazing crucial conversations Seven learnable, repeatable, and predictable principles for success. The first principle that we saw master communicators using in very crucial conversations is called start with heart. What do I really want? This simple skill of asking myself a question restarts the biocomputer. Remember we talked about how the brain shuts down? Well, questions itch the brain. And by posing a question, immediately the biocomputer starts looking for an answer. A second principle we saw these master communicators use, we've called learn to look. In learn to look, we teach you a model of communication that helps you analyze what's happening in this current conversation. Where are we and where do we need to go to get back to an effective conversation? And the next one is really a revolutionary concept. It turns out that what causes people to become defensive during crucial conversations is not the content. Now, again, this is, uh, this is a breakthrough idea. What causes people to get defensive with one another is not the content. You can say anything you want to anybody on the planet as long as you can help them feel safe hearing it. Safety is the condition that predicts success or failure in a crucial conversation. It is not the content, it is the condition of the conversation. All of us have had conversations with people who have given us negative feedback and not become defensive. We didn't become defensive. We didn't take it badly. The question is why? Clearly, it was not because the message was an easy one to hear. It was because we felt safe with that individual. 
Some people believe that safety means we have a long-standing relationship with this other person, that we trust them and their intentions and so forth. The truth is, we can become defensive with people we know very well and love very well. In fact, we can get more defensive with these people. There are skills for creating safety in a crucial conversation which cause people's defenses to drop. One skill that we teach in Make It Safe is the capacity, once you've learned to look, as Ron described, noticed people moving to silence or violence, which is evidence that they don't feel safe. The skill is to step out of the content of the issue and make it safe. So Make It Safe is a principle for attending to the conditions of the dialogue. If you can master this one, you can literally say anything and people will not become defensive. Fourth principle, which is master my stories has a lot to do with our assumptions about ourselves. And many of us assume that my mom makes me mad (laughs) or the driver in traffic who cuts me off makes me angry. What we found with these master communicators is a recognition that other people don't create my emotions. Rather, I create my own emotions. And the way I do it is by the assumptions I make about the situation, the conclusions I draw, the judgments I make. In Master My Stories, there are a set of skills that help us recognize the type of story we're telling ourselves. Is it a victim story? Is it a villain story? Is it a helpless story? And as we recognize the type of story we're telling, there are some very specific skills that help us retell the story in a way that makes it much more likely we'll produce emotions within ourselves that will lead to effective conversation. So let's take a look at where we are. We've talked about the first four principles. The first one, start with heart, is about how do I get my head and heart right as I'm approaching this conversation? A big challenge. The next three are all about How do I monitor and create conditions for success? Learn to look. How do I notice conditions when they're getting out of hand? Make it safe. How do I create conditions so that you will feel safe hearing even some really tough things I might need to share? Master my stories. How do I create emotions inside of me that are conducive to this dialogue we're trying to create? Hard skills to apply, but these are the ones that these most effective communicators use and use consistently. The next three, and we're making a transition now, are all about the content. How do I say what I need to say? State my path is principle number five. How do I say what I need to say in a way that is the least likely to provoke your defenses? Well, one little concept from there that flies in the face of traditional wisdom. We're so often taught to start by sharing your feelings, share them in the form of I messages, dead wrong. These effective communicators that we see do not begin by sharing their feelings, even if they share them in a way of saying, I feel this or that. Where do you begin? You begin with facts. You start with the facts. You begin by stating observable or behavioral evidence that the other person will readily agree with. In State My Path, we share five skills for saying what needs to be said in a way that is least likely to provoke defenses. Why is that helpful? Because for some darn reason, during crucial conversations, we say it in the way that is most likely to provoke defensiveness. The next principle is explore others' paths. And this has to do a lot with listening and understanding. If a person goes towards silence, if they're reluctant to talk to you about a sensitive issue, if they're uh, finding it very difficult to express themselves, there are a series of skills that in a very short time can create a lot of safety. These skills have to do with listening and truly desiring to understand 
your perspective, your point of view, your data, if it's relevant, uh, your feelings and your actions. We find the very best communicators are excellent listeners and they know how to ask questions that make it safe for the other person to share their point of view. This is the principle that helps invite those in silence back into the dialogue or those who have gone to violence to diffuse their emotion, to let go of their emotion, and to join you in a reasonable, rational, logical conversation. So here's where we're at in your crucial conversation. We've started with heart. We got our motives right and our goals clear. We've created the right conditions by learning to look, making it safe, and mastering our stories. Tough thing to pull off, but it's at the heart of success. Now we've stated our path and we've explored others' paths. We've gotten all that they had to say about the issue out in the open. The question is, are we done? You know, Joseph, it's really at this point that I think a lot of people fear uh, crucial conversations because... They've had the experience of having a reasonable, rational, decent conversation, and then it starts looping. And what I really like about the last principle is how it keeps us from churning in conversations. So the conversation once again becomes crucial, as in principle number seven, we move to action. We agree on who is going to do what by when and how we will follow up. So many people leave this off at the end. Well, the skills that we teach in Move to Action help you draw conclusions and come to closure so that the issue will literally be put to bed forever. If you can master that one and the skills that you apply at the beginning, you're well on your way to mastering your crucial conversations. I feel a little frustrated with this format, Joseph, because as we mentioned, in each of these seven principles, there are several skills that we watch the master communicators use. And of course, we don't have time here to explore those in great depth. But my hope is that by at least understanding the principles, they can be a guideline to people. Uh, The idea of make it safe is a huge idea. If I can just be thinking about in this next conversation with my daughter, with my spouse, with a key customer, how can I make it safe for them to hear what I have to say? How can I make it safe for them to express their point of view without being fearful of my response. That'll take people a long way toward improving their crucial conversations. Absolutely. Our experience over the years has been that people can get better at this. We do have to confront tremendous physiological challenges when our emotions get aroused during crucial conversations. But the question is not, can we become perfect? The question is, can we make progress? The goal is progress, not perfection. And our experience is that if you get a little better at your crucial conversations, results in your life get a lot better. We've worked with organizations that have improved productivity by 50% in a 12-month period of time by working on the capacity to have crucial conversations. We've seen marriages turn around. We've seen people be able to engage support from their entrepreneurial organizations as well by learning to handle the crucial conversations that are keeping them stuck. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home on the web at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.